Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from the beginning to the present. And for the past several weeks, Dr. Carpin has been speaking to us about the different causes of the Civil War, and he reiterated over and over again that the causes were simple, yet the causes were also very complex politically with what was going on from the Constitutional Convention all the way to, unfortunately, Fort Sumter. And as we look at the causes of the Civil War, overriding cause was the issue of slavery, and it was exemplified through the expansion of the territory. Are the expansion territories going to be slave? Are they going to be free? Do they have the ability to decide for themselves? Are we going to keep it balanced between slave states and free states? And there were so many compromises that ultimately none of these compromises worked. So unfortunately, we got to the place, and Dr. Carpin will be coming back in later programs to talk to us about the election of 1860 and how the election of 1860, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. And then the southern states decided that they saw the tremendous possibility of what might happen to them being slave states. So they began to secede from the Union. And the first state to secede from the Union was South Carolina. And Dr. Carpin reiterated several times that they actually started to secede from the Union before Abraham Lincoln was even inaugurated. In that time period, presidents were inaugurated in April. And it was in December where South Carolina seceded from the Union. And then Dr. Carpin will be talking to us about the election of 1860. But we need to move ahead a little bit because this past week we had the unfortunate, or I shouldn't say the unfortunate, we had the the, uh, anniversary of Antietam. And it was the single bloodiest day in American history the Battle of Antietam, or the Battle of Sharpsburg, if you were a Southerner. 23,585 men were casualties in about six hours' time at Antietam. And that was the single bloodiest day in American history. And from the Battle of Antietam, that is when President Lincoln decided, in his own mind, that Antietam was a victory for the North. And because that was a victory for the North, Abraham Lincoln then felt comfortable to give forth the Emancipation Proclamation. It was to take effect, and it took effect on January 1st of 1863. Antietam was September 17th of 1862. So it took several months for the Emancipation Proclamation to be put into process at that point, and that's when the whole cause and effect and purpose of the war changed to now we're going to end slavery at that point. But we need to get there. We have to look at the military background of how did we get to this tremendously awful carnage battle of Antietam. So we have to go all the way back a little bit 
And we, first of all, we have to talk about General George McClellan. George McClellan was a Philadelphian. He was educated at the University of Penn. He then went to West Point. He was actually underage to go to West Point. They changed the rules to get him into West Point right before his 16th birthday. So George McClellan wanted a military career. And George McClellan was a very, very, very smart human being. When George McClellan is brought in from Philippi, West Virginia, to now the, to be the commander of the Army of the Potomac. After the first bull run, George McClellan took 10 months in the Washington area to build the largest army in the world, which was the Army of the Potomac. And it was somewhere between 110 and 115,000 soldiers, including foot soldiers, cavalry, artillery. 110 to 115,000 soldiers. McClellan trained this army. He got this army supplied. He got them weaponry. He got them clothing. And they were a well-trained army. And for 10 months, George McClellan did not leave Washington, D.C. With the encouragement or the public embarrassment or the prodding of other generals, and particularly Abraham Lincoln, George McClellan finally moved the Army of the Potomac out of Washington, D.C., and he announced that he was going to take Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy. Before he left Washington, D.C., President Lincoln went to his home to talk to him, to encourage him to get this army out of Washington and put it into the war. Well, McClellan was out to dinner, and the president waited in his parlor for him to come home to talk to him. And George McClellan did not like President Lincoln, did not like him, did not respect him. Oftentimes, he called him very disparaging names. McClellan made fun of his height and his leanness and his looks and his clothing. So the president is sitting in George McClellan's parlor waiting for him to come home for about two hours. George McClellan comes in. He goes upstairs to bed. His butler comes up and says, General McClellan, the president of the United States is here to talk to you. And McClellan said, well, tell the president I'm going to bed. So Lincoln leaves, and then he begins to say that George McClellan suffers from the slows because he, he wouldn't get his army out of Washington, D.C. Finally, in June, McClellan leaves Washington, D.C., he goes down into Virginia. He comes up the peninsula there, somewhere in Harrison's Landing, which for most of us, it's close to Yorktown. And McClellan begins to move towards Richmond. And his army is almost four to one, the army of Northern Virginia, the Confederate army that is trying to protect Richmond. McClellan gets within 15 miles of Richmond, and he stops. And there's this major battle at Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, 15 miles south of Richmond. McClellan stops, and the Confederate general there was killed. General Johnston was killed at Fair Oaks, or Seven Pines, and this is where it changes for the Confederacy, because General Robert E. Lee is now put in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia. So Lee is taken out of the administrative role that he has in Richmond, and he becomes the commanding officer for the Army of Northern Virginia. Robert E. Lee knows George McClellan very well. George McClellan knows Robert E. Lee very well. And these two men, in their combat experience and their fighting experience, 
are opposites. McClellan is very cautious. He's very slow to move. He is very deliberate. And he hates casualties, which we all do. Generally, as a combat officer and a commanding officer, he was decisive. He was a good strategist. He was aggressive. And he would fight. So what General Lee did to get information on McClellan's army, he had Jeb Stewart totally circle the Union Army, go behind it, come up behind it, circle all the way around it, come back to Lee and give him information exactly how many men the Army of the Potomac possessed, what kind of equipment they had, what were their supply lines like, and all the any information that they could get. So rather than waiting for McClellan's army, the Army of the Potomac, to attack Richmond, Robert E. Lee went on the offense and he attacked the Union Army at Mechanicsville. And it was about three to one casualties. The, the Union had 400 casualties. Mechanicsville for the Confederacy had about 1,500 casualties. But McClellan saw casualties of 400 out of 115,000 in his military, and McClellan withdrew all the way back to, or across a defensive position at Gaines Mill. Lee attacks again. He loses more men. He has more higher casualties than McClellan, but McClellan is convinced that he is losing, so he retreats, and McClellan retreats all the way back to Harrison's Landing. And the press, and we talk about the press today, the press in that time period was not very kind towards George McClellan, and neither was President Lincoln. So to defend himself, George McClellan wrote an article and stated that if he had 10,000 more men given to him by the president, he would have taken Richmond. McClellan had 115,000 in his army. His casualty rate, his casualty percentage was about 3%. 65,000 of McClellan's army never saw one moment of action. He kept them in rear guard. So McClellan tried to blame the president for him retreating when it was McClellan who really was very cautious and really didn't want particularly to put his, his men out there in the battlefield. And a lot of historians believe that McClellan had much more sympathy for the Confederacy. And what I mean by that is that McClellan thought if these southern states want to secede from the Union, let them go. Let them go. If that's what they really want to do, let them go and we'll do something else. And we see that later on when McClellan ran for the presidency in 1864. That was part of his platform. That was part of his platform as a Copperhead Democrat in 1864. So what does President Lincoln do after this major retreat by McClellan? Could have taken Richmond? He believes that possibly the army was too large for one man to be the commander of it. It needed to be split up into smaller armies. So General Halleck then is brought in to be the commander of all the Union troops. General Joe Hooker was given men to go at, to Fredericksburg. General Burnside's, who is considered one of the three worst generals in American history, he has given 15,000 troops to put on ships down in the Virginia area and into the peninsula. John Pope, who had success in the West, was brought in to attack General Lee's army. And now, so what are they going to do with George McClellan? He's trained. He's an officer. He's a general. What are we going to do with George McClellan? Well, they decided to send George McClellan up to the way top of Maryland and put him in a position and put him in a place where no one thought 
there would be any action. A town called Sharpsburg or on the Union side, Antietam Creek. So the army now has been split up. They had different generals with all different parts of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, John Pope now has the second bull run, which is in August 29 and 30 of 1862. And John Pope is pretty much defeated very quickly by Robert E. Lee at the second bull run. So now the Union Army has suffered several major defeats. So what does President Lincoln then decide? He decides to take the whole army of the Potomac and put it back under the command of George McClellan. And that was a major problem. That is a major problem. So as McClellan is around Sharpsburg, Antietam Creek, Robert E. Lee then decides that he has got to get supplies and he needs manpower. So if you remember, Maryland, the state of Maryland was forced to stay in the Union. It was a border state. President Lincoln took away the writ of habeas corpus. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus, and Maryland had to stay in the Union. But there were large majority of Marylanders who supported the Confederacy. So General Lee with the Army of Northern Virginia, decided that he was going to invade Maryland to get supplies and manpower for his army. Robert E. Lee comes up with battle plans because he wants to attack McClellan because he knows he can defeat McClellan, even though McClellan's army, the Army of the Potomac, is much larger. So Robert E. Lee draws up battle plans, and they were special orders number 191. There was three copies of them. Lee sent them out to his commanding generals. And one morning, a couple of the Confederate carriers were having breakfast, and there was three cigars that slipped out of one of their pockets. Lee's battle plans was wrapped up in one of the cigars, and the couriers went off. Well, Union carriers came by, or scouts came by, and they found these cigars, and they unwrapped the cigar. And here is Robert E. Lee's battle plans for attacking McClellan at Antietam. So General McClellan knows Robert E. Lee's battle plans, and he knows he's going to be attacked at Antietam. Robert E. Lee sends Stonewall Jackson to recapture Harper's Ferry to get weaponry, and Lee begins to move his army towards Sharpsburg. So McClellan sets up the army on the opposite side of the Antietam Creek. Jackson, Stonewall Jackson, retakes Harper's Ferry on the 16th of September. Now, we need to understand that at this battle, the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, outnumbers the Army of Northern Virginia, Robert E. Lee's army, three to one, three to one. And McClellan knows Lee's battle plans. And at the beginning of the battle, the battle starts up on the northern side of the battlefield, which we know as the Miller Cornfield. And General Hooker is leading the Union Army up in the cornfield, the Miller cornfield. And this is about 17 acres. And this went back and forth between the Confederates and the Union soldiers, the Union soldiers, the Confederate soldiers. And this went back and forth. And these men are in this cornfield where the stalks are still six or seven feet high. And it was a major bloodbath for both Confederates and Union soldiers up in the Miller cornfield. And this is where most of you have probably seen that very famous picture of the Dunker Church that they use as a hospital. Well, when this part of the battle is over 
and it's around dawn to about nine o'clock in the morning. There is not one stalk of corn left standing in the cornfield. And later on, soldiers said that they could walk over all 17 acres of the cornfield and never have to step on dirt because there were so many dead bodies in this cornfield. So this is the first part of the battle as a draw. The second part of the battle, which is in the middle of the line, which we know now as the Bloody Lane, the battle is Antietam now becomes in the middle of the battlefield, the sunken road or the Bloody Lane. And there's back and forth there, and the Confederates hold the Bloody Lane for several hours, and ultimately because the Union was far, had so much more men, so much more manpower, they finally break through the sunken road or the bloody lane. And it's, it was about six feet deep, this lane that was worn down over time by wagon wheels. And the Union soldiers said they could literally, there were so many dead corpses in, in this sunken road, they could literally walk straight across it. And that's how, and this, this, this is what, Terrible, terrible fighting there, and that's why it's called the Bloody Lane. Well, the Union Army could have just run down as the Confederates were, were retreating away from the sunken road, retreating back down that sloping hill into, into Sharpsburg. McClellan orders the men to halt. Do not chase after the Confederate Army. It's a trap. And again, remember, McClellan knows Lee's numbers. McClellan outnumbers Lee's army three to one. So rather than continue to push the advance, McClellan tells the army to stop at the sunken road, the bloody lane. Then the third part of the battle is in the southern part of the field, down along the Antietam Creek, and that's under the command of Ambrose Burnside, which you know and maybe you've seen pictures of the famous Burnside Bridge. Burnside is told to go across the bridge, come up the hill, and flank the Confederate army. Well, there are sharpshooters, Confederate sharpshooters. So Burnside sends a few men across the bridge. They get shot. He sends a few more men. They get shot. So rather than just running across the creek, sending all his men across the creek, it takes Burnside's from 930 in the morning to one o'clock in the afternoon to get over the bridge because he was told to cross the bridge. Very, very incompetent general. At one o'clock, when Burnside finally gets across the bridge, he stops. He stops to reform his lines. He doesn't advance up the slope and flank the Confederate Army. And for the Union Army, by this time, General A.P. Hill has come up onto the field and has supplemented the Confederate right flank where Burnside cannot move and cannot flank the Confederate Army. So this battle, unfortunately, for the Union Army, totally ends in a draw. Union, 12,410 casualties. Confederates, 10,700 casualties, totaling 23,582 casualties. McClellan does not advance and he does not chase Lee. He believes that it's a trap. But he, remember, he has Lee's battle plans, and he knows Lee's numbers, and he outnumbers the Army of Northern Virginia three to one. So when this battle was over, and technically it's a draw, finally 
McClellan is relieved of command, never to see command again in the United States military. And then he goes on to have a political career. But the other important aspect of this is President Lincoln now sees he believes that Antietam was a victory for the North. So he gives forth the Emancipation Proclamation right after Antietam, and it takes effect on January 1 of 1863. President Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation 10 months before Antietam and kept it in his desk and waited for a Union victory. And he got to the point where he said, Antietam is a Union victory, so he gives forth the Emancipation Proclamation. And what that does, it's a political document that not only frees slaves in Union territory captured in the South, but it was also very significant that Great Britain was thinking about mulling over of supporting the Confederacy because they needed Southern cotton. You can't grow cotton in Europe. Well, now Great Britain is not going to support the Confederacy because they don't support slavery. So they did not come in and recognize the Confederacy or try to get arms or try to get cotton out of the South. So now the Confederacy is going to begin to be strangled. So Europe is not going to recognize the Confederacy because of the Emancipation Proclamation. And what this does now, the war now has a dual purpose. President Lincoln, the first purpose was to preserve the Union, and he never wavered from that. Now there's a dual purpose of when this war is over and the Union Army wins, slavery will be ended. And then we finally see in December of 1865, with the passing of the 13th Amendment, that slavery constitutionally was outlawed. But in the meantime, before that, any occupied Southern territory where there was slavery that was now occupied by a Union army, technically those slaves were freed. And so that was the extremely important document given by President Lincoln because it now stops European countries to supporting this Confederacy, and it also gives a purpose to where we're going to we're finally going to end slavery. So with all the purposes of the Civil War. Again, Dr. Carpin has said many times, the major purpose, we're going to end slavery, which the 13th Amendment did, the Emancipation Proclamation was the beginning of that, and what that did militarily. So many troops, many men, many people paid a very high price, not only to preserve the Union, but also at the same time to end slavery in our country. And President Lincoln saw that he ultimately needed a general in charge who was going to go toe-to-toe and fight Robert E. Lee. And so President Lincoln goes through several different more generals, commanding generals, and then ultimately he brings Ulysses S. Grant in from the West, who then oversees every Union army. He has a major hand in the Army of the Potomac, now being commanded by George Meade. And General Grant then chases Lee all the way down into Virginia pretty much blockades him at Petersburg for 10 months. Lee has to move westward, and General Grant finally catches Lee's emaciatedly now small army at Appomattox, and that's where General Lee surrenders his army. 
but the war still goes on for a little while longer, where two or more Confederate armies are still fighting. So that is the political background, and that's how we get to the place where the purpose of the war was to end slavery, and it was being fought over slavery, and ultimately it was done away with with the 13th Amendment. But it's the Battle of Antietam that does change the whole focus where President Lincoln gives the Emancipation Proclamation. So the battle in itself was important, but the political ramifications of the battle is also important because President Lincoln that issues the Emancipation Proclamation and turns the purpose of the war, and he turns the European nations from thinking about fighting for the Confederacy. So we will continue on with our study and looking at the aspects of the Civil War and the elections all around the Civil War as we move forward. So again, thank you for listening today. I hope this gives you a little bit more clarity in the importance of Antietam socially and politically as well as militarily. This is WFYL 1180 AM, Working for Your Liberty. 